I read the story of a martyrdom, but that was the song that he sang as uh, he was taken to his death in a time of persecution and martyrdom. And I, I cannot remember the, the whole story and the names, but it brought new meaning to that song because that was the song that he sang as he was taken uh, to his death for the cause of Christ. And may that be true of us that we have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Tonight I want us to take a little bit of a different angle in our series as we have been this year looking at, at the, uh, in our Sunday evening series, looking at discipleship, both as disciplers, mentors, and also as disciplees, people who are learning from those around us, mentors, and how we can be a good mentor, a good example, as we were singing, as our theme for the our theme song for the month has been Be an Example, how we can be good examples, but also there are people that we are looking up to and that we are learning from. And again, the idea of uh, having a, an Apostle Paul in our life who we look up to, or a Barnabas who is a fellow a laborer and encourager, but then also having a Timothy uh, that we are uh, trying to help. And we may have multiple of those different uh, people, um, but... Uh, as we've been emphasizing discipleship, I want us to look at a, a miracle that we're very familiar with, but I want us to kind of take a look at it from a discipleship standpoint. Now, I hope I didn't make anybody hungry by the, the picture of the bread. I'm a bread guy. I know that, that carbs, um, I know that gets some people in trouble, and I probably should cut back on my carbs, but I'll have to admit, I, even though I love uh, a good meat, for breakfast, bacon, sausage. I, I'm, I'm a cereal guy. I love bread. And, you know, with, with all the inflation, Fazoli's breadsticks went, you know, you used to be able to buy a dozen breadsticks for $2.99 or $3.99. Now, now you, you get a carb overload for about 8 bucks. But uh, those uh, Fazoli's breadsticks are, are wonderful. I think that they're even better than Olive Garden. But anyway, I'm a bread lover. And uh, I don't know anything about this particular uh, piece of bread, but of course it goes with this miracle with the five loaves and the two fish. Four parallel accounts, four eyewitness accounts that complement and supplement each other. There's no contradictions. We're not going to be able to look at each one in, in detail, but I want to draw from these passages and help us to see how Christ matured his disciples through the simple example, the simple illustration, the simple act of a miraculous meal. And the way that our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, often used regular, simple, everyday aspects of creation and would use them to illustrate and to teach and to mentor and sometimes even to, to separate, in a sense, the wheat from the chaff. And that's a little bit of what he's doing here. I should, I should say more than just a little bit, but we'll, we'll get to that uh, here in just a moment. But for a little bit of a context, a little bit of a, a geography lesson here, we are looking at the north part of the Sea of Galilee. Now the one map, I guess it would be to your left, we see at the top of the Sea of Galilee, we see Bethsaida and then a little bit to the west there, Capernaum. And the feeding of the 5,000 would probably have taken, as best we can tell from the passages of Scripture, would probably have been around the town of Bethsaida, over toward the the central eastern part of the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, Lake, uh, Lake Gennesaret. But then by the end of the passages and following afterward, as Jesus would send the disciples out on the boat, and there would be the storm, and Jesus would walk on the water, Peter would attempt to walk on the water, and then Jesus would enter the boat, and it would be taken across immediately, it would have been Capernaum on the opposite side there, a little to the west of the Sea of Bethsaida on the Sea of Galilee. So that is 
what we are talking about here. I borrowed part of a map to maybe help us with the other side, and it's a little bit bigger, hopefully a little bit easier to see, Bethsaida and Capernaum. And so, of course, the Sea of Galilee is a uh, well-known and a very key geographical feature. So that is the area that we are talking about as we look at this particular miracle and how Christ matured his disciples and how Christ even did some dividing here of the wheat and the chaff. There is a testing both of the disciples as well as of the multitude. Jesus is going to bring the multitude to a point of decision. He is going to grow his disciples. He is going to encourage his disciples. He's going to strengthen their faith. There's going to be some important lessons. There's going to be a teaching time, yes, in the sermon, but also in the meal and also in the circumstances right afterward as they go into the boat and go out into the storm. So we see in the context here that John the Baptist has recently been murdered as a, as a martyr. And so, pardon me here as I uh, continue here in the, 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 the PowerPoint, we are looking at a time where there has been a, a shocking martyrdom, murder of John the Baptist, who obviously was a tremendous disciple, a preacher, a forerunner who had great faith. And it was even said of him that uh, there, there was uh, no, no greater among, uh, among women, born of women, than John the Baptist. He was a great man, a great preacher. He had given his life in service of the Lord and, and as a Nazarite and preaching and proclaiming as in the spirit and power of Elijah as the forerunner of Christ. And we know that as disciples begin to turn to Jesus, John the Baptist in humility said, he must increase, I must decrease. He said he wasn't even worthy enough to latch the, the sandals or unlatch the sandals of Christ himself. And John the Baptist cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. But we know that he spoke up against Herod, uh, Herod Antipas in the northern part of Judea, in the northern part of Israel, the Roman governor in the northern part of Israel. He spoke up against Herod Antipas because he took his brother's wife. So sometimes a preacher has to speak up even against those who are in public circles, those who are in, in places of politics, in public places. Sometimes a preacher has to speak up and call sin what it is. Did not Nathan have to go to the king, to David, and say, Thou art the man? We don't know all the circumstances exactly, but John the Baptist spoke up. He was a bold preacher. He, he, he wasn't looking to be martyred. He wasn't looking for persecution, but he called out Herod Antipas, and Herod, the family line of... Herod did not have many splits, if I can make that kind of casually on the side as a note that the Herod family was very perverted and debased, very wicked, very immoral, and Herod Antipas had taken his brother's wife, and John the Baptist called him out for it, and of course we know Herod Antipas is what would it be his stepdaughter did a sensual, perverted dance, and Herod Antipas fell for her sensuality and her, seduce, her, her seducing him, and he said she could have whatever she wanted, and she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so John the Baptist was martyred, was murdered. It's right after that that we come to Matthew 14 in verse 13. Matthew 14 in verse 13. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. So when Jesus heard of what? Of John the Baptist's martyrdom, murder. He goes and he departs into a place. It says apart, most likely to meditate, to pray, to be with his heavenly Father. And when the people heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. So now they're coming out of the cities and they're coming down into that area in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee into that area around Bethsaida. 
And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. We come to verse 15. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals or something to eat. So that sets the, uh, that's the setting. That, that sets up for where we're at in uh, this event, this account of this great miracle. There was great excitement, great energy among the multitudes about Jesus. Can I just maybe take a moment and put it into the modern vernacular? If Jesus wanted to sell tickets and pack out an arena or an amphitorium or someplace, he could have done it, right? The tickets would have been on, uh, they would have been a hot item. They would have been high price. They would have been a, a much, much wanted uh, venue. He, he was gathering. He was, uh, the multitudes were excited. It was full of, they were full of energy. They came from around their cities to Jesus. Great thing. That's a wonderful thing. Here's the Messiah, the Son of God. And he's, he's performing miracles. He's teaching them great truth. That's a wonderful thing. The multitude is coming. But we know that many there that day were not committed to Christ. Sadly, there would be many that day who would not truly, with a sincere heart, be desiring Christ and following him. They had other motives. They had a different idea of who Christ should be in their lives and what he would represent to them. We'll get to some of that. But we see that Christ had compassion. He had a care for the crowds. And Jesus went forward, verse 14, and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. Jesus knew that some people were there just because it was the thing to do. Big group, lots of people. He was popular for good reason. He wasn't popular for bad reasons, of course. But he knew that there were people coming that day that did not have a heart for him, who were not sincerely desiring the truth and to be submitted to the truth of who Christ was and what he would call them to as true disciples. But what did Jesus do? He healed their sick. He had compassion on them. He had been called out of a spiritual activity, having gone probably to pray and to commune with the Heavenly Father. And now after John the Baptist martyred him, he comes and the multitude gathers and he has compassion. Literally, that word compassion means to be moved in one's bowels. He left a place of refreshment, of prayer, a time where he was away, and those are important times. I have the note there on the, the slide about times of rest are important in ministry and serving. We can't just go, go, go and burn both ends of the, the candle, so to speak. But he comes out of a period of rest and refreshment, communion with his Heavenly Father, and he goes immediately into serving, and he goes to the people with compassion. The idea of being moved in one's bowels is the idea of having those innermost feelings. We sometimes talk about it when a boy and a girl have those infatuations, <laughs> and they get around each other, and boy likes girl, girl likes boy, and they, and they get near each other, and they... You know, now what do I say? And they, they have those inner feelings of affection, right? We sometimes think of it in those terms. This is really far more than that. This is far more than some junior high-ish little boy crush or little girl crush, okay? This is a deep, intense feeling of compassion, desire, of love for these people. It's so deep that the Greek word that is used has to do with the bowels. And I don't have to go um, anywhere with that to understand how important our bowels are. And when they are not right, <laughs> it is not good, right? When things are not working properly down here, 
it has a lot of detrimental effects. We feel it, and it, we understand how important that area is, okay? But this is obviously the idea of affection, of love, of great compassion, deep, intense feelings. He was deeply touched by their spiritual needs. Were there physical needs? Yes. But those physical needs really were just symptoms, signs, or symbols of greater spiritual needs. We know that the physical needs ultimately are because of what? Sin. There wouldn't be these physical illnesses. There wouldn't be this need for healing if there hadn't been sin in the world. So some of it has to do with the fact that obviously Christ was grieving over the fact that sin had entered into the world. But he knew that he had a solution. He was the son of God who would go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. But there is, in the physical illnesses, there is, as we think about even Isaiah 53, and we think about by his stripes we are healed, we have to remember that even our physical illnesses and sicknesses, our sufferings, are opportunities for us to draw closer to the Lord, to call upon him. As we talked about this morning in our times of affliction and suffering, we're to pray, we're to go to the Lord for wisdom, we're we're to seek him. So we understand that even the multitude who there was suffering without all the medical technology that we have today. I was talking to Patty on Friday afternoon and she was describing what they did with the surgery and the kind of table they put her on. And it's just incredible, the medical technology. Uh, There was somebody else that was just describing something to me uh, just recently that I was just, I never heard of before. I was just awestruck by the advancement in medical technology. Of course, they didn't have that back then, but Christ was able to instantaneously, miraculously heal them. And when they were healed, they were healed completely. Now, yes, they would eventually die. For as appointed a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. But there was a real, instantaneous, miraculous healing. And there was nothing wrong in that sense that they came to Christ wanting physical healing. That wasn't wrong. Okay, but we're we're going to see Christ continuing to test the multitude and to test the disciples. Now, we understand that in verse, as we come down in verse 15, and when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Okay, understand here for a moment. They weren't that far removed from places where they could get food. Now, they didn't have McDonald's and Pizza Hut and Burger King and all the places that we have. I mean, Lafayette is blessed to have all kinds of eating establishments. Now, I would love for the old restaurant there that's by McAllister's Deli and by the drugstore there at the corner of South and Creasy. I would love for that to be turned into a Red Robin. Um, someone mentioned to me recently that they would love to have a Trader Joe's. Uh, my mom would say amen to that. My mom's here tonight, by the way. She's going to stay with the boys for uh, a couple of nights while we're gone. I would love to have a Trader Joe's as well. I mean, they're, we're blessed, though, in Lafayette to have a lot of of good eating establishments. Would there be places that they could go in that area there where they could get food? The disciples were saying, we can send them away now while there's daylight and they can go get something to eat. So they weren't saying that these, that this crowd had gone multiple days and were starving and were near death. They were just simply saying, yes, it's the end of the day. It's almost dinner time, supper time. You're hungry. The crowd's going to want something to eat. It's almost dark. If we, if we send them away now, they can get something to eat. They can go into the villages and eat. Okay, so the disciples are thinking practically. We also know from a parallel passage that there was a question, I believe it was uh, Thomas, who asked the question about if we, because Jesus asked him a question, where, where can we get can we, why don't we just buy them, or something about um, food, buying them food, getting them food. And I believe it was Thomas who said, if we buy them food, it's going to cost 400 denarii. <laughs> and Thomas is like, or Philip, uh, I, I get my names mixed up and I have it in my notes, but I'm trying to recall it. Um, one of the disciples said, if, it's gonna, if we're going to feed this multitude, it's going to be at least 400 denarii. It's going to cost a lot of money. Where are we going to get the money to, if we don't have that much in the, in the treasury, so to speak. So this is kind of the, 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 the issue here. 
This is the context. This is uh, putting the, the multitude in a place where now they're going to have to eat. The disciples are wondering how that's going to happen. Christ, of course, was testing the commitment of the discipleship of the multitude as well as strengthening his own apostles, his own disciples. He's going to put them through a test. He's going to strengthen their faith. He's going to test their faith. I, I love how Christ, as the master mentor, the master discipler, I love how he grows and strengthens and matures the faith of his apostles. And we see very similarly, though I know we are in the 21st century and we're far removed from that time and place, but he still similarly tests and challenges and strengthens us in our discipleship. And I want us to to see some of that. But we see here that Christ was desiring to meet, yes, their physical needs, healing their sick, but also he had a desire to meet their physical need of hunger, to give them food to eat. But he had far more than just free food and free medicine. He had far more than that in mind. Those were good things, and the multitude was coming, and the disciples had good intentions. But there was far more that Christ was doing in this miracle. So we come to now some lessons. Some lessons. We see a test of faith. There was going to come, as we go to a parallel passage in John 6, we don't have time to read all of this passage, but... If we were to take the time to read through John 6, 22 through 40, we will see that this miracle, this feeding of the multitude, the 5,000, which we know was, was probably far beyond that, not just 5,000 because that was uh, just the men plus women and children. Okay? There's estimates that it could be uh, 20,000. Okay. And he would do this miracle again with another multitude toward the end of his ministry. This is early in his ministry. But there is a point now, a crucible, a testing. And in John 6, 22 through 40, we understand that Jesus was drawing out from the multitude those who were truly devoted to him in true saving faith, in true discipleship. Because in verse 22 of John 6, The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save that one wherein two his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh into the place where they did eat bread, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping, came to Capernaum. They go across the Sea of Galilee to the west there. Seeking for Jesus, and when they found him on the other side of the sea, they say unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And then Jesus begins a spiritual lesson. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. And then he begins to really drive the point home in verse 27 of John 6. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. There was a meaning in the miracle to bring them to saving faith. He wasn't saying labor in the sense of do enough good works to earn your way to heaven. He was saying seek me diligently with a whole heart, not for the food. Not for your own personal physical satisfaction, but because you have a spiritual need that only I could meet. And that's what he was drawing them to a point of decision. And he would go on in John 6 and he would give the discourse on the bread of life. And he talked about eating of his flesh and drinking of his, 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 his blood, not in a cannibalistic sense, but in the sense that Jesus Christ needed to be there all in all. He was not there to just have him added to their life as a good luck charm. As someone who could come alongside and do miracles for them and take care of all their physical needs. Not just to add Jesus to their many other good prophets 
and think of him as just someone who could be a therapeutic counselor. No. Jesus was calling them to a decision regarding eternal life. That you must take of me as the bread of life. And I must be your all in all, your everything. And that's one of the places that we have to be. And we have a, a mile wide and an inch deep religious landscape. Because a lot of people, they want Jesus for good luck, for self-help, to be a therapeutic counselor, to be a good prophet, to be a good teacher, to make their life a little better, to name and claim. And they don't want him to be their all in all. To radically change their life. To deny themselves to take up their cross and to follow him. He was also strengthening the faith of his disciples. I wish we could have time to go back and forth to all of these passages, but he is testing the faith of all of the disciples. They're asking about sending the multitude away. <laughs> they're, they're saying, how do we have enough money? And Jesus is trying to get them to realize, men, this is not about just getting our physical needs met. Having a big gathering and having food and having a great time on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. No, this is about separating the wheat from the chaff, who are the true disciples versus those who are not. And this is about the meat of the will of the Father. There is a ministry here. And don't we get caught up in this if we're not careful? We want church to be, and praise the Lord for good fellowship times, for meaningful activities. Praise the Lord for pitch-ins and cookouts and all that. But why do we do those things? The world can do those things. And the world sometimes, and, and don't get me wrong, I've heard people say this. When they were unsaved, they will say, yeah, I could hang out with the Christians and they would have their this and that and the other, but we could do it better. <laughs> when it came to partying, man, we could do it better. We didn't have to worry about all that legalistic stuff. We didn't have to worry about all those thou shalt nots. Man, we could, we could booze it up. We could drug it up. We could do the immorality. And, and they would even talk about the music. Why would I want the cheap Christian knockoff stuff when I could have the real thing? I remember a man who got saved out of a horrible lifestyle our former ministry <laughs> and he said he said why did i even care about any of that christian rock stuff he said we just kind of humored the christians with it but when we really wanted the real stuff we were like let's just go for the hardcore stuff we didn't really the, that christian stuff was just a waste of, of time he was mocking the christians we're evangelizing we're you know right here's christ Growing his disciples, and he's doing what? He's changing their very mindset to be a ministry mindset that everything is sacred. Oh, we may have, I understand the terms secular and sacred, and there's a secular mindset that ignores the sacred. There, there are sacred um, in, in, in secular duties in the sense that we, we understand that preaching and teaching the word of God is a sacred duty. I understand we use those as semantic terms. But your ministry at work, your ministry in your place of recreation, your ministry on your ball field, your ministry, my ministry, our ministry, wherever we go, we don't forget our Christian testimony when we get in the car and drive home. I certainly hope not, especially if we have a fish symbol and a Jesus is my Lord on the back on the bumper sticker of, of our vehicle, right? And then we go spinning out of the parking lot and driving like a maniac. What kind of testimony is that? We can wear the t-shirt, have the bumper sticker, but... Where's the real essence of our faith? And Jesus is getting the disciples. He's taking them from stage one to stage two, where they were just, in a sense, observers and learning. And now he's saying, men, it's time to grow up. It's time to start thinking ministry. That everything we do is done as a Christian, is done as a disciple, because it won't be long. And they are called 
without Christ physically with them, and they will turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. How did they get to that point? They had to go through some maturing. They had to have a meal where they had to see ministry. And this isn't just about a bunch of people getting together and then we send them on. This is about a ministry that we have to have with these people and beyond into the future. He's preparing them. He's training them. And can I just mention as a little bit of a side note, he doesn't train them to be good miracle workers. Okay? Just taking a moment and pausing for a minute here. He doesn't give them a prescription for how to be better miracle workers. He's maturing their faith. He's teaching them ministry. He's helping them to see people as God sees them. To be able to go out and preach and to minister to all kinds of people and all different kinds and to have to deal with hardship and opposition. So many lessons. He doesn't say, okay, now if you really want to be good Christians, you need to learn how to really make the miracles work so that you can really draw the crowds. So if you just tap your feet a certain way and you wave your arm a certain way and you say this incantation just right, poof, (laughs) miracles are going to happen. Signs are going to be in the sky, visions and wonders, and the multitudes are going to come. Is that what he does? He doesn't even teach them a prescription for how to do miracles. They're going to do miracles. They're going to have the signs of the apostles. They're going to be given special miracle working power for that dispensation for that time. But it was all going to be submitted to the will of God and for ministry according to God's timetable, according to God's will for a specific purpose. Because we get ourselves in the way. We want it to be about us, don't we? And he's training them. He's teaching them. He would, trust, he would teach them to trust him to do the impossible. I wish we had time to go to all these passages, but I have not seen or ear heard things that God hath prepared for them that love him. All the things that they are uh, being prepared for and that they are going to see God do. They're going to see him do the impossible. Not because of their great prescriptions or their great formulas and their seven steps and their 40 of this, he's saying that they are going to be submitted to the will of God, to the work of God through them, in spite of them, as they are willing, submissive servants for the Lord. And as they trust him, God will use them and he will do great and mighty works. Really, in spite of them. Doesn't mean that they are exempt from being faithful, from being obedient, from being submissive, of course. All that is still true. But God has a desire for us as his servants, as his disciples, to use us wherever he has us. He also teaches lessons simply about organization and orderliness. God is a God of order. God does uh, not use confusion and chaos. We, wrote, we know from 1 Corinthians uh, Chapter 14, uh, that God is not the author of confusion. Doesn't Satan love chaos and disorder? Trying to divide up and to make everything disorderly and upset. It seems right now that men and women who have given themselves over to the rejection of God and his word it seems like they are just dead set on destroying every institution, even down to clear scientific biological categories, setting up men, uh, parents from in, 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 in opposition to their children and children in opposition to their parents. Isn't it interesting that in the prophecies, even regarding John the Baptist, he would set the hearts of the fathers to their children Isn't that interesting? But we see Satan trying to do the exact opposite, right? But we see order, organization, that God is not the author of confusion. Mark 6 and verse number 40. And even here, um, as Derek was reading earlier, uh, they were set by 50s. We know that they took up 12 baskets full. Um, We see the order and the organization in which this crowd was ministered to and the multitudes. We see principles in that. We see loving the unlovely the difficult and the proud. There were people there who were not there for the right reasons. 
They were not there truly as submitted disciples, yet they were still ministered to. Do we not see opportunities for growth even for the disciples who would have to minister to some difficult people in their days, who would have to love the unlovely? Do we not as disciples and as disciplers, if we're going to do discipleship, do we not sometimes have to get, in a sense, our fingers dirty in people's lives as we love them? If we're going to do discipleship in our home, do we not have to sometimes get into the messy things in our children's lives? Do we not have to, as fellow church members, as we talked a little bit about this morning, and caring for one another and provoking one another to love and to good works, do we not sometimes have to go there that we don't really want to go? I've had to do that. I've had to tell people. I've, I've, I've even told people. You can go to another ministry. They'll pat you on the back. They'll affirm you in this sin and this lifestyle. And they will congratulate you and say you can continue to practice that sin. You can continue to do that and still be a good Christian. I said, but if you want to come to our church, not that we don't love you. We love you so much that we're going to give you the truth. And we're going to confront you about that issue. Because we love you and we don't want you to continue down that road and doing that thing. A good Christian cannot continue to practice that activity. But there's plenty of ministries out there who will be happy to say, oh yeah, you can be a good Christian and do that. There are almost a dime a dozen now ministries that would be happy to affirm us in our sin and say, go on your merry way. Just do what you want to do. Just say you love Jesus. Because God sees the heart, right? I mean, they use all those other, all those things. Well, he's helping prepare these disciples for ministering to multitudes of people that sometimes could be difficult and unlovely and proud. We can see principles of not being wasteful with the 12 baskets. We can also see that this miracle was done without fanfare. Jesus didn't go out and send the disciples on a mission afterward to go and tell everybody what great miracle I did and how they can also do great miracles on their behalf and, you know, on and on. Just being a little bit of rhetorical or, or just kind of thinking maybe a little bit outside the box there. But we'll see that what did Jesus do upon the completion of this miracle? He puts them in a boat. He sends them into a boat, into a storm. <laughs> what kind of a loving father, what kind of a good mentor and discipler takes them from a lesson of a great miracle with five loaves and two fish, a little boy's lunch, and multiplies it with 12 baskets left over, exceeding abundantly, and then puts them in a boat and sends them out into the sea where there's going to be a storm. Right? What kind of a loving discipler, mentor, loving father is that? But it wasn't about the miracle being a fanfare for attention, for applause, there was so much more spiritual meaning to this miracle. So much ministry, so much growth and discipleship that Christ was doing and even separating the true disciples from the false. So we see, thirdly tonight, Christ's submission to the Father's will. Christ's submission to the Father's will. We come down to John 6 and verse 14, skipping over to one of the parallel passages, John 6. In verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. What were they recognizing? They were recognizing that no man could do this miracle but one called of God, God himself. And they were referring back to Deuteronomy 18 in verse 15 where Moses speaks of the prophet. That prophet is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they recognized this has to be that prophet that Moses spoke of. Some are, are getting, getting it. They're receiving the truth. They're realizing. They're even recognizing prophetic fulfillment. But we see again, if I can emphasize this again, that the miracle that Jesus did was not for pride, for popularity or political power. If we were to continue, again, we don't have time to read the entire passage. But in John 6, we see that the multitude, as we read earlier, 
the multitude was basically ready to take Jesus and to make him some sort of political king, to make him some sort of political ruler. Let's get rid of this Herod the Great and Herod Antipas, and eventually it would be Pontius Pilate, and let's get rid of all that Roman oppression and Roman rule, and let's, let's this Jesus, he's got miracle-working power, he can heal the sick, he's a great teacher, he's got a lot of good things to say, let's just elevate him to be king. That was not the Father's will. And they were not genuine in their discipleship, those who wanted that. Now, I know that there was a measure of faith that the disciples had to grow into because they were seeing a kingdom and less of the cross. Okay, I understand that. There was a growth for them as well. But we see in John 6 and verse 28, Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? What were they saying? Wow, we, we, we want to be able to have miracle working power possibly. We, we want to we be able to share in this fanfare that we could take advantage of in this popularity. Where, where can we fit into the kingdom? So it was, it was all superficial. It was all very materialistic. It was all very man-centered. It wasn't about submission to Christ. So what does Christ answer with in John 6 and verse 29? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. So lest anybody ever believe that John 6 and verse 27, labor not for the meat, is teaching some sort of work salvation, Jesus makes it very clear. Obviously that's not what he's saying in verse 27, but he makes it explicitly clear in verse 29. What's the work of God that they should do? Believe. Come to Christ in saving faith. Believe on me. Receive me as your Savior. So we see what Christ is doing my meat is to do the will of him that sent me, he said in John 4 and verse 34. He refers to my hour and my time in, in this uh, passage. And then we see, as I just mentioned a few moments ago, what Jesus is ultimately doing. He's growing his disciples. He's maturing them, helping them to see ministry. And he takes them from a miracle, an incredible miracle, and he sends them to a boat, to go out into a storm. We're back to Matthew chapter 14. Back to Matthew chapter 14. And I, I want to make this application as we, as we finish up tonight. And straightway Jesus, Matthew 14, verse 22, and straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. He urged them. This is very important for you to get into. I, I don't know if there was any kind of back talk. I doubt it. But I, I can't help again but think, Maybe they, maybe they were wondering, do we not get there in our Christian life? God, what are you doing? You just performed a miracle. There's this great multitude, and you want us to get into a boat and get on the... Don't you know what the Sea of Galilee is like? It could be a storm any minute. And go where and do what? In our minds, humanly speaking, we're like, let's, let's go get a bigger audience, <laughs> let, let, let's do something more grand or extravagant, get in a boat, go across to the other side. He constrained them, almost as if there was something about the way the disciples reacted that said, really, this is what you want us to do? Are we not there sometimes in our discipleship? God, you've called me to this? Go out into the deeper water, cast the net on the other side? It takes faith, it takes trust, it takes obedience. How do we ever grow if we're not willing to do the hard thing? If we're not willing to obey in the simple, simplest things? I'm, I have failed at it, but I have often seen in my own life that if I'm not willing to do the hard thing, if I'm not willing to make the sacrifice and to do the work, then I don't grow. I don't get anywhere. I can desire all I want to lose 20, 25 pounds, but if I don't put in the work... If I don't change my diet, if I don't do this or that, we can t t make that application to a hundred other things. We see it in sports, we see it in music, we see it in so many areas. But we want what? What do we want? We want the spiritual pill, the easy diet plan for living the victorious Christian life. We want God to put a vision in the sky. We want some sort of 
experience. We want some sort of external that we can easily say, I'm spiritual because I got to do this on Sunday. I got this experience. I saw this and you didn't see it. So I'm more spiritual than you. All that, right? That's the temptation. When Jesus says, trust and obey, walk by faith, minister to others, love people, serve me faithfully, go and be willing to do even the simplest tasks, be willing to go and to do what even can be hard. It may mean reaching into someone's life, it may mean going out of our way, it may mean dropping off a meal, it may mean checking on somebody, how are you doing, I haven't seen you for a while, hey, I've noticed you've been down. I used to tell kids at school, I would tell them, I would say, you see that classmate, they come in day after day after day, and they're always down. Instead of bullying them, making fun of them, teasing them, ripping on them, and getting everybody to laugh, and you won, you won the put-down prize, I would tell them, why don't you go to that person and say, hey, you seem to be down. Had something happened at home? Are you all right? Let them know you're, you're praying for them. Encourage them. Don't just find something that you don't like about them and make fun of them. And, and, and mock them. No, minister to them. And that means we have to check our, our pride. We have to check our spirit. We have to look to the Lord and to his word and obey and trust and live by faith and be willing to go out and do even the hard thing. And he sends them in the boat and they get into a storm. And can you imagine what it was like in that storm? We just had a great miracle. We just had this great mountaintop experience. Wonderful. And he's got us in. And where's he at? Where's Christ? He's alone praying. And he's probably praying for those disciples. And Christ is interceding on our behalf right now. Even with groanings which cannot be uttered, the Holy Spirit and intercessing and, and comforter. And Christ is seated at the right hand of God as our advocate. And we're going through storms and he's praying for us. He cares about us. And it gets hard. And we're in a storm. But Jesus is right there, isn't he? He comes walking on the water. We know the story. Peter tries to get out. He sinks. And he, Christ gets in the boat, and they're immediately at the shore. And then they go on to Capernaum. The multitude comes again, and they're, they're wanting, again, more of the selfish things. But Jesus sent them in a boat. He went to pray. He walked on the water that night. He calmed the storm. He had a purpose. He had a reason. He knew what he was doing. Sometimes we have to do the hard thing ourselves. Sometimes we have to send our kids into the hard things. Sometimes we have to be the bad guy, the bad mom, the bad dad. Got to wake them up in the morning to come to church. I know they're not going to like us. I know they're going to scream and cry and complain, especially when they're younger. Maybe when they're teenagers, they don't scream and cry and complain anymore. But you know what I'm saying. We got to get them up, get them... I mean, there's all kinds of things, and we're not, we've not always been perfect at it, and still aren't. But how are they, how are they ever going to learn to sacrifice the Lord and live by faith if we don't take our discipleship and our discipling and sometimes ask to do the hard thing and serve? We would try it at our Christian school, and I would sometimes do this with the kids, and I would sometimes purposely, and I so am so thankful for Dr. and Mrs. Abrams before we ever went on a mission trip to Kenya. And Dr. and Mrs. Abrams said, before we ever go to Kenya, we have to learn to serve. Because if we think that we're going to serve in Africa and we're not willing to serve here, then we're not going to be worth anything overseas. And they meant that with love and compassion. And they took us and they put us up in the social parlor and we served for hours pouring drinks and serving hors d'oeuvres and meals. And I forget what all we did that night for hours. And we were all bone tired at 10 o'clock at night and had to get up the next morning and go to church. And I remember thinking that night, this is hard. I don't want to get up the next morning, but I understood what the Abrams were doing. And I'm thankful for those kinds of people in my life. I'm thankful for parents who put me in hard places at times to teach me. I'm thankful that God puts us in places where we have to grow up. <laughs> we have to put on our big boy pants, so to speak. I'm thankful for people who step out and serve, and we've seen that. And there's other ministries I love to see our church develop, and it's going to take leadership. It's going to take growth. It's going to take us having a ministry mind and saying, how can I minister? How can I serve? How can I have a ministry mindset? The disciples had to learn that. Oh, 
They were ready. I mean, the sons of thunder were ready to bring down fire, right? They were already arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who was going to sit? But Jesus was doing what in John 13, washing the disciples' feet. The lessons just kept coming, didn't they? Over and over and over again. As we grow, as a mentor or a disciple, we pray and counsel, we instruct and comfort, but we also test and strengthen. And sometimes, as God does with us, as God brings mentors into our life, sometimes it comes down to we have to change, don't we? And change can be hard. It can hurt. But if we don't turn off that TV, if we don't get up when the alarm, if we don't do certain things, if the drunkard keeps going back to the bar, is he ever going to change his alcoholism? If the addict keeps shooting up the drugs and hanging out at the drug house, is he ever going to probably change? I mean, sometimes it's the changing of the whole friendship circle, isn't it? If someone's struggling with pornography, is it, does it do any good to watch certain programming? Oh, well, at least it's not the porn. Right? And then yet they're watching certain kinds of shows and movies. No wonder there's still the struggle with the, the pornography. Because they're feeding that. How do we get victory over something if we keep feeding it? So sometimes it does take change. And sometimes the discipler has to say, you know what? This has to change. Or God's working in our heart and someone comes in our life and we say, you know what? You're right. I need to change there. And then we have to put in the hard work and we have to change. Christ was working. He was dealing with his disciples. He was growing them. And they were going to go out and turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. But they had to grow along the way. There was some counseling, some conviction, some confrontation, some change. But Lord willing, and we know the story, we know the truth. If we get into the book of Acts, and we see those disciples, those apostles, doing incredible things for God. How'd they get there? Because of moments like this. And may that be true of us, and as we mentor and disciple others, may we see God do a work and change our lives and change them, that together we can labor for the Lord and serve him and see him do a great work. For his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this lesson and this miracle. So much more that we could say, but thank you, Lord, for the way you discipled the apostles and the way you disciple us. And Lord, thank you for giving us the opportunity to be discipled and to mentor and disciple others. Help us, Lord, to be an encouragement to one another, to love one another. Help us be willing to make the changes that you point out in our life and help us to grow in our faith and our love for you and our obedience and faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Derek is going to come and lead us.